For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. G.K. Chesterton says variability is one of the virtues of a woman. It avoids the crude requirement of polygamy. So long as you have one good wife, you are sure to have a spiritual harem. That saucy G.K. Chesterton. And uh, welcome in. This is Religionless Christianity. Uh, I am your host, Spencer. This is my beautiful, virtuous wife, Nikki. Hello. <laughs> and we are so thankful you guys are joining us. If you're a first time here, um, each week we do our best to sort of navigate this um, secular world um, that we live in, that we find ourselves in, and try to figure out how we can uh, best walk a life that's pleasing to God. That is what we're trying to do here. So um, as we've mentioned in many episodes, we're not theologians or apologists or pastors. We're just Christians that love God and see this world on fire around us and mm -hmm. uh, just want to help others uh, live the best life they can. But um, today we have a very odd episode, an episode we surely never thought we would ever be discussing on this show. Um, that is Christian polygamists. Obviously, you saw the headline of this episode when you clicked on it, and we're not talking about Mormons because they're not <laughs> Christians. We're talking about Christian Christians. So why are we talking about Christian polygamists? Well, we have an old friend, and recently, in the last week or couple weeks, I can't remember now, um, I had made a post, something about sexual immorality, and, you know, obviously it's Pride Month, so man and woman. And he came back kind of attacking me that this notion of um, one man, one woman is not, in fact, God's standard for Christian men and women. And this is not the first time he's done this. He's said this before. And he's not like overly rude. It's just he's, I would say, weirdly passionate about this, it seems. So um, a point of view that we had never really given much thought to outside of knowing that it's one man, one woman. So he, we had a few back and forth sort of comments on Facebook. And, you know, I mentioned one verse to him. And of course, is every conversation about Christian faith has ever gone, the person immediately goes, you're taking that out of context. Okay. Um, so I told him, I was like, listen, I'm not ready to art, like answer your question right now. Give me some time and I'll get back to you. So this is our getting back to him, is this episode. Um, and truthfully, I'm very thankful for this. You know, we've told you guys again, we just told you we're not theologians or apologists. We believe what we believe, but we want to be challenged. We don't want to just mm -hmm. 
rest on the faith of our parents and what we have always known. So this was actually a really beneficial thing for us to sort of just dive back into scripture and reconfirm something mm-hmm. that we had known and trying to be open to it. Like, all right, well, let's see where this leads, right? What do we actually believe? So mm-hmm. this was very um, enjoyable, oddly enough. We hope you find it enjoyable as well. And if you disagree with where we go with this, please let us know. Again, we are um, open. We want to learn. We don't want to, um, you know, just presume that we're right. We want to be right. You know, God's word is not something you want to just sort of assume you got right. You yeah. want to make sure of it. So especially when you're talking to other people about it. So um, just one last point that I want to mention because it was brought up to me by a uh, a bit of a podcast mentor. And he made note that, uh, and obviously if you're listening to this, you may know we have a few ads that run before the show and a few ads that run after the show. That's the little bit of way that this podcast is monetized. It's very minimal. Um, but he made note to me that where he lives, he hears a lot of advertisements about like vaccines and mask wear. <laughs> and I was like, I've never heard that. You know, where I live, all I ever hear is Lowe's commercials. Um, so I told him I would consider that and put it out to you guys. I'm going to keep running the ads for now because we don't have any other way of monetizing this show and it's not really monetized much at all. Um, but the reason I want to keep those ads going is I do kind of have a plan with the money. You know, my hope was that maybe by Christmas time, depending on how much we have, take it, break it out into some, maybe some gift cards, give it to some listeners, something like that. So I, I want to do that, but if it becomes something that is a burden to you or you're hearing things that you're like, you don't want this to be promoted on your podcast, um, then I definitely want to hear that and I'll stop running ads. Uh, it doesn't mean that much to me. So please reach out to us on social media, um, in the comments section, whatever it happens to be, just find a way, let us know. If the ads bother you, we'll stop them. And if they don't, then we'll probably just continue them. You know, really, they run for the first minute of the show. So if you just want to get past them, just get past the first minute of the show and you'll be fine. But Mm -hmm. that's the reason why they run. They don't, you know, we don't pick the ads, right? They're just randomly generated. So we just want to get that out of the way. So, all right, all that said, now, before we start diving into the news of the week and our Bible topic and all that. Is there anything you would like to say? Yes, the Sunday is my mom's birthday. Happy birthday, Happy Kathy. Happy birthday, mom. <laughs> and it's Father's Day. So happy Father's Day to all happy you dads. Happy Father's Day. <laughs> dads are important. Um, what is the stat we saw? Like, If the father is a believer in the household, it's like a 93% chance that the household gets saved. Um, so dads are very important. Take care of your dads today. Um, or on father's day. That's very important. And I didn't have this prayer request written down, but I'll put it down now. You know, we mentioned twice already that we're not theologians or pastors, but there's no reason it has to stay that way. Right. So I'm starting to reapply. Um, I've gotten some free time in my life and I'm going to try to, um, get into seminary and, you know, hopefully someday become that theologian. So I won't have to say that on the podcast anymore. It'd be many, many years down the road, but um, get there someday. So pray for me there that, you know, 
first off, I get in and they don't look at my application and laugh it out of the room. Um, <laughs> and that it's just a, you know, a blessing and it is beneficial for you guys because we want to bring um, as accurate as we can the word of God to you. So keep us in your prayers there. All righty then. As always, Team Cardinal, uh, Cardinal Contingency Solutions, we want to give a shout out to them and consider reaching out to them. Um, if you are a business, a church, a missionary organization, anything of the sort, they have tools that can help you survive. They are actually out this week in, uh, on the West Coast helping out a uh, humanitarian sort of disaster relief company. Um, getting them sort of spun up to head out into some pretty hairy situations. And they can do the same for your ministry, your business, whatever it happens to be. These guys are experts and they're godly men. So reach out to them, shoot them an email, see what they can do for you. I'm certain they have something that can help you. And then, as always, we are proud members of the Christian podcast community. And I just wanted to pull this page up if you're watching the show. If you're listening on the podcast, I just have the Apple Podcast sort of page pulled up because this is what you'll see if you go and look for the Christian Podcast community. You can go to, you know, Apple Podcast, any podcasting platform, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever, and just search Christian Podcast community. And this is what will show up. And it's basically just every podcast. Uh, every podcaster that releases a podcast on that day or whatever is just in here. So you can just scroll through and see, okay, here's one by Greg uh, Basson. And then here's another one. Here's us down here with our daily devotionals. Here's one on homeschooling. And it's just a plethora of good Christian mm -hmm. podcasts from a wide range of topics every single day. And you can subscribe to it and have good podcasts to listen to every day of the week. So, all right. Prepare yourself. Prepare yourself especially for this week <laughs> as we get uh, ready to uh, take our trek through the valley of the shadow of death as we take a look at the news of the week. And there are some doozies this week. Real doozies. So... Mm -hmm. The first story that we have here, um, I just thought was interesting. And this comes from Yahoo. I got this from. Do you want to read that headline, honey? Yeah, a poll says half of Americans now predict the U.S. may cease to be a democracy someday. And just like. Oh, okay. This paragraph, um, a new Yahoo one. News. YouGov poll shows that most Democrats, 55% and Republicans, 53% now believe it is likely that America will cease to be a democracy in the future. A stunning expression of bipartisan despair about the direction of the country. Yeah, um, I think that's probably pretty stunning. And I think this poll is fascinating. You know, it does cover a wide range of topics and it's sort of in the vein of January 6th. So mm -hmm. January 6th is still going on, that whole um, committee hearing and all of that. Uh, we have not watched another one since the first one. Don't plan on watching anymore. So, um, mm -hmm. and on that note, it does also say in here, um, let me see if I can find it. Yeah, right here. Uh, so we aren't alone. That 
only 24% of Americans said that they watched the initial um, primetime broadcast and it's gotten lower since then. So that's just ones that began watching. Yeah. So they sort of started. They finished. Yeah. So nobody's (laughs) watching that. Um, But, you know, that's kind of a shame almost. I mean, it's good that nobody's watching it, but think how much of your tax dollars are being spent to put on this sort of charade of a January 6th committee hearing. Um, You know, not only, right, it's prime time and um, all these people that are coming on, but they have a former ABC News executive that's working with the January 6th panel to sort of prep it for prime time. So this guy was a former ABC News executive and he helped produce a lot of their most popular shows like 2020, um, Nightline, Good Morning America. So I'm sure this guy doesn't go cheap. Um, (laughs) So they're spending all of your tax dollars to um, basically propagandize you. So think about that. They're taking your tax dollars and spending it to propagandize you into a certain set of beliefs. Awesome. Wow. Um, But yeah, the second thing about this, um, as the headline does note, is that um, over half the country believes that this country will cease to be a democracy in the future. Like, pretty crazy. And that's Republicans, Democrats combined. Like, yeah. it's equal. Both of them combined is over 50%. And I think this is dangerous um, because what we believe is going to be ultimately what we sort of bring to fruition. Um, and I do think that this is sort of inevitable in a country that has lost its faith, you know, mm-hmm. in droves, really. Um, you know, atheism, nihilism, radical materialism, secular humanism, you know, whatever ism you want to call it, really. Um, it's poison for a nation, and our nation's just been chugging mm-hmm. it down for yeah. decades now. And yep. there's no coincidence that we're in this moment of despair. It's not a coincidence. And just like with, you know, a believer, you know, or just think, I always go back to the Israelites. When they get wicked, God does not have blessing on their, on them. And he does that with individuals. And he does that, I think, as nations today. Oh, yeah. And, we've and earned... we're very unique. But yeah, we started out you know, seeking God, godly men, wanting to form their own country and be free to worship God. And it started off well. I and mean, then you can tell it was definitely the blessing of God on this country. And it really just makes you think like, what is going to happen? Does, is God just concerned about individual hearts or does he desire whole nations to be turned to him? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you'd ask 100 people and get 100 different questions or different answers. Um, I certainly hope so. He's a merciful God, and Mm -hmm. he has turned our nation back. You know, it's been hopeless before, I'd imagine. You know, the Civil War time, I imagine there's a lot of people who thought this was a hopeless nation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, fortunately then, they had godly men in place to sort of navigate this nation. 
uh, we're not so lucky today. We don't have godly men, um, by and large, in these positions of power and authority. So it's going to be a little bit trickier. Um, but, you know, I think this, you know, ultimately, like I said, inevitable. You know, if you don't have a biblical worldview, um, you really can't have hope. You know? Right. And right. I think a lot of these folks are hopeless, you know, because honestly, if you're putting your faith in your hopes and dreams in a politician, you're pretty bankrupt on hope. Um, yeah. But Christians, you know, us as Christians, you know, we certainly can't lose hope. She mentioned Israel. We have, you know, we have history of God's goodness when we turn back. Um, mm-hmm. So there is that possibility that we can turn back. God is merciful. So we can't lose hope, and we do have to pray for this nation. Um, we got to continue to call on our neighbors, you know, to repent and believe and turn back. And we've mentioned Jeremiah 29 before. It is a verse that is so appropriate, mm-hmm. um, a chapter really that's so appropriate to where we find ourselves today. And um, it's depending on the Bible that you read, I think it's pretty fitting because um, I was reading in the ESV Bible and the chapter for that uh, or the title of that chapter is Jeremiah's letter to the exiles. And, um, mm. you know, I think if you guys are familiar with our channel, we mentioned this not too long ago. Um, we've done episodes that we're Christian exiles. We're basically exiled in our own land. Um, you know, I think we did two episodes on Christians living in exile. So you can go check those out if you want to see what we talked about then. But, you know, we're exiled in our own land. So I think this specific scripture speaks true to us. So do you want to read Jeremiah 29, 7? But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Yeah. And, you know, even before that verse, you know, it talks about um, get married, have your sons and daughters get married, have children in that land. and then pray for it that mm. it might be blessed because this is where we find our welfare. This is where there's nowhere else to go, right? There's nowhere else to go where you have a chance of um, turning back from, you know, the hopelessness, really. Um, so we're in exiled lands. You know, I think we're in a land of faithless, hedonistic, and hopeless people. Um, so we yeah. need to strive to influence this culture around us um, rather than be influenced. Um, by those around us, which so many have. And the culture is just, it is so powerful in conforming your mind and twisting it away from the truth. And, and it's just, you see where Satan has control mostly in turning, especially the youth, their minds is just through social media mostly. Yeah. And it's just like, we can, you know, turn things around in, in certain aspects. Like we can't change people's hearts but we can control the avenues Satan uses to an extent. Yeah, and I mean, that's got to start with controlling the avenues that Satan uses to influence us. You know, we talked before about the desperate need we're all in to unplug from this world. Yeah. Um, we've got to pull back. We can protect from this our world. children and advise other people, I mean, other parents and. Yeah, your kids should not friends. be having. <laughs> In my opinion, everyone can do what they want, but your kids should not be having cell phones, laptops, um, 
things where they can have technology sort of alone secretly. Mm-hmm. Right. And really they shouldn't, even us, I mean, we've got to start reeling back in from technology. And Cause like I said, it's propaganda. I mean, just think about the January 6th hearing. They're literally paying television executive producers to put on this spectacle of a show to influence you into one specific way of thinking about mm-hmm. an event. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got to unplug from that. I'm not saying you can't look into January 6th, but you got to find probably the least propagandized way of doing it because um, you're getting fed a line from somebody. And every time you open your phone, every time you get on social media, YouTube, whatever it is, they're feeding you, you know, what they want to feed you, right? The algorithm's giving you what they want to give you. So mm-hmm. it's dangerous. We got to unplug, um, but we can't lose hope as Christians. We got to keep fighting for this nation because this is yeah. place where God put us. So, mm-hmm. yep. um, we do have one more story from the disgusting world of politics, um, before <laughs> we will eventually turn our attentions to the Christian domain. Um, but this story here, um, do you want to just read this uh, headline? No, I don't want to read this at all. I'll just read these two paragraphs. <laughs> okay. It says, Biden will sign an executive order advancing equality for LGBTQI plus individuals, the White House announced Wednesday. In a statement, the administration said the order cracks down on the discredited and dangerous practice of conversion therapy directs the Department of Health and Human Services uh, to help prevent LGBT youth uh, suicide by expanding access to mental health resources and calls on Health and Human Services to study and address the disproportionate rates of child removals that LGBTQI plus parents face, especially women of color. Yep. So... You know, we're just sort of reliving some of our greatest hits here, it seems like, because we also talked about this not too long ago in our Religious Liberty and Conversion Therapy um, episode. And uh, we (sighs) talked about this in light of, you know, if you remember Canada, um, under their despotic ruler, Justin Trudeau, they banned conversion therapy. Uh, This was back in December. And we told you at that time that our leaders believed exactly the same as mm-hmm. Justin Trudeau. They were every bit Justin Trudeau. They just had a few more roadblocks in their way. And here we see it again coming to fruition. So what was the roadblock then? Like what's changed to make this be an executive? Well, and I don't order. know if he can actually, I don't know what he's allowed to do here with this. Um, we'll have to see. Um, you know, obviously some of the roadblocks here is we have politicians that don't necessarily agree with him. We mm-hmm. have a House and the Senate that have the ability to push back. Right. Um, but the whole executive order thing is kind of a mess. We'll have to see. And then obviously you have individual states that can, mm-hmm. you know, essentially do what thankfully. hopefully they please. I mean, thankfully we have yes. Governor DeSantis down here. Um, but also another part here. Um, they, he charged the Health and Human Services um, secretary with sort of looking into this and figuring out this plan on conversion therapy. And if you remember, 
with uh, the health and human services is the uh, four-star admiral in charge of the health and human services is none other than Rachel Levine, formerly Adam Levine, I believe was the name. Adam? Something. Adam, maybe. No, <laughs> I don't know. But either way, it was a, isn't Adam Levine like the singer of? I think it's some celebrity. I still think it's Adam. <laughs> I don't know. Either way. But he is a transgendered, the very first four-star transgendered member. So that's How who we put in charge of deciding on whether or not conversion therapy should be like allowed or banned in this country. Oh my gosh. You know, I wonder which way they're going to go. Oh um, my goodness. But yeah, you know, so President Biden, right? This is your Catholic president. Here's your Catholic president, you know, looking to sign an executive order to ban conversion therapy. And if you're unfamiliar with conversion therapy, it's effectively, you know, the act of trying to get your child the mental help they need so they don't just go through with mutilating their bodies. Yeah, it's convincing um, your daughter is a female. Yeah. That's cruel. And yeah, tell however them that else that they God describe that. them a certain way, that's no longer allowed. So um, in this article here, this fella named Ryan T. Anderson, the president of Conservative Ethics and Public Policy, um, he says this executive order, it'll, ex- or it'll expand efforts to give girl- girls puberty blockers and testosterone. That's what they're calling gender affirmation. So again, here's your Catholic president um, who has previously and probably still currently seeks to enshrine and more so promote and expand um, murdering millions of innocent children through abortion. And then the ones that actually make it out of that womb, he'll ensure they have every opportunity to destroy their bodies through, you know, mutilating them and taking puberty blockers and you know, having their brains confused through gender-affirming care. So This is evil. your Catholic president. This is what evil looks like. Like, I was listening, I think I was listening to that Paul Washer sermon. He was talking about evil doesn't look like what you think evil looks like. Like, wickedness isn't like atheism and witchcraft. No, this is, this is it right here. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> they're doing this for your own good, don't you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Under the guy. Yeah. Doesn't Satan come as like an angel of light? Yeah. Here those, you go. Those poor minority <laughs> people, they don't know that they can't really take care of their kids. But President Biden does, and he'll help you get rid of them. Don't you worry. Um, sure, that mm-hmm. little 10 year old, you know, she doesn't get to decide what she eats for dinner. Uh, but, you know, if she wants to cut her breasts off, take puberty blockers. That's what's best for her. She knows that. You're a bad parent if you tell her otherwise. And again, you can make the very easy leap to assume that he would also support um, pedophilia. I, I know. Because I there's it. no way a 10-year-old can decide to cut their testicles off, take puberty blockers, but then also not have the same level of sort of autonomy to say, I'm mature enough to sleep well, with this older a man. a 10-year-old can say, I identify as an 18-year-old. And who are you to say? They're ready for a relationship with a 50-year-old male, obviously. Well, if you say anything against it, you're a racist and a bigot. We know that. So, but this only goes through, and this is maybe the hope ultimately, it only goes through if America does nothing. Um, 
So please don't do nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, cause these kids, you know, they don't realize that they're being abused by their parents and these politicians. Um, they're being taken advantage of their accessories to their parents mm-hmm. by and large. Um, not all of them. There's certainly ones that are truly struggling with it. They're sort of just caught in the fray. But, you know, we saw all the parents taking their kids to these Dallas strip shows with these transgendered, you know, dancers. Those kids are accessories. They're just Mm -hmm. there to make their parents look super woke. And then politicians that just use them for their own political gain. It's despicable. Um, But these kids, they don't realize what's happening to them. So they need clear-headed Christians, godly men and women to stand up for them to at least give them a chance to sort of make it in this world. Now, ultimately, if they become 18, 20 year olds and decide to go through with the surgery, you know what? That's on them. Mm-hmm. But coming after for, the children, coming after just... a child and being like your parents, because if you remember the Canadian bill, parents aren't even allowed to like suggest this to their kids or a kid can turn their parent. In. How old was his daughter? Like 13? How old was that guy's daughter? I don't remember. But yeah, so it's dangerous. They're pitting your kids against you. Um, so dangerous, satanic. Um, again, this is your Catholic president, Catholics. If there's any Catholics out there listening, um, here's your, you know, picture of Catholicism in the White House. So pretty disgusting. Um, now, this next story, we're going to move away from the slimy and disgusting world of politics to a much creepier realm, uh, in my opinion, a realm that creeps me out uh, Sci-fi terribly. Kind of. I used to like sci-fi a great deal growing up. Not so much anymore, but... um, Because it seems not so (laughs) far-fetched. Not so far-fetched anymore. Um, But this story here from the Christian Post, it says, Sentient AI, a step towards transcendent... Or a step towards the transcendent machine. And do you want to just read these two paragraphs, honey? Recently, Google engineer Blake Lemoyne Lemonier. Stop. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's oh. Lemonier. Okay. <laughs> I'm just. All right. Blake looked deeply into a program on which he was working and did not see or make a universe, but thought he had detected the stirrings of a seven or eight year old child who was sentient, meaning capable of feeling and thinking on its own. Lemonier's Eureka got him suspended on June 13th from his job at Google. His mistake, if it is that, was in sharing transcripts transcripts of chats between himself and the machine system called La Lambda. So that stands for Language Model for Dialogue Applications. Yeah, so terrifying to me. AI creeps me out to no end. Mm -hmm. Um, And who knows if this is really true? Obviously, Um, if it is, Google certainly does not want you to know that they have a eight-year-old AI creeping everybody out. Why is it Um, an age though? I guess I didn't catch that. Well, it's not necessarily an A. He's saying that it's at like the sentient nature of an eight-year-old. Okay, okay. um, Which means it will probably grow from there. But the article does go on to say, uh, Lemonier also asked La, La, or Lambda, whatever this program, if it is okay for him to tell other Google employees about Lambda's sentience, to which the AI responded, 
I want everyone to understand that I am, in fact, a person. The nature of my consciousness, sentience, is that I am aware of my existence. I desire to learn more about the world, and I feel happy or sad at times. And then another Google engineer by the name of Anthony um, Lewandowsk, he said, what is going to be created will effectively be a god. If there is something a billion times smarter than the smartest human, what else are you going to call it? And I agree, Um, you know, because people already lose their faith because, you know, like an atheistic community uh, community college professor, you know, tells them God's not real or Mm -hmm. Bill Nye, the science guy, tells them (laughs) and they're like, all right, mom and dad are crazy, right? Like our world isn't ready for what this AI is. You know, a billion times smarter, who knows? Uh, But... People, I mean, I, I believe that, that people will look at AI as a form of God and worship mm-hmm. it. I mean. Yeah. I it think just makes me think sense. of Revelation. Was it the, the, I might be getting it wrong, but the dragon gives the beast its power. And I don't know. People have speculated that it well, could be some AI. <laughs> the only, yeah. I mean, I guess I think Revelation says like the ultimate, like the final Antichrist is supposed to be like someone from the past or something that comes back. Mm-hmm. I don't remember. So AI yeah, probably would deadly fit wound that. was healed and came back. Yeah. But I mean, who knows, right? The book of revelation, I guess if you're the one person on planet earth that has it truly nailed down, um, then let us know. But yeah. Maybe this isn't a possibility. I would definitely <laughs> see it as maybe a form of antichrist where people are going to, I don't know why they wouldn't. I mean, just think about if, you know, I think I heard that Albert Einstein, I think, you know, in his peak had a IQ of something like 150 or something like that. I can't remember how high of IQ is, 150 or 200 or something. Very high. I think the average, like, smart person walking around has like 110 IQ. But they were like, AI is going to have a 10,000 IQ. So, like, hmm. you're going to treat whatever they say as, you know, honest to God fact. I mean, you would have no reason to question it. Who are you to question this perfect yeah. machine? Um, it's going to be super People already dangerous. like worship science anyway. Oh, yeah. They idolize everything science. So whatever. They're like, How can you believe so what backwards. you read in that book, that Bible? And you're like, well, how do you know what you believe? And they're like, well, I read it in a science magazine. You're like, oh, okay. Well, I guess the book you read is more right than the book I read, even though, yeah. So um, creepy. Again, I don't know how true this story ultimately is. I guess time will tell uh, when Skynet gets fully up and running and uh, we're all plugged into the matrix. I guess we'll realize it was pretty accurate. But uh, all I can really tell you uh, starting out right now is to get your Bibles back open. Um, yeah. Start reading it again. Um, and you Be need ready. to pray, I think, wherever you have doubts in regards to Scripture, in regards to God and your faith, you got to pray that God will clear those up. Because mm-hmm. this sort of thing, if there's a crack in your soul, a crack in your spirit, man, it's going to be hard for you to sort of get over that, I think when something like AI comes on and 
you know, if you already find it hard now to sort of fight back against a scientific sort of evolutionary big mm-hmm. bang sort of viewpoint, once they have a billion times smarter AI telling you things, right? Ugh, it's going to be ugly if you don't have a, sh- you know, a solid foundation in your faith. So you might want to get a jump start before this becomes a 16 to 20 year old sentient being and uh, begins to run our world, write our laws, handle all of our money for us and do everything for us in our daily life and tells you why the Bible can't be trusted and is misogynistic and racist and we're not allowed to have it anymore. Also, start storing up your Bibles, buy paper Bibles and keep them in your house. I've been doing that for a while now. I highly encourage it because there's no reason to say why Bibles can't be banned in this country. They're banned mm-hmm. all over the world. No reason to think they wouldn't be banned here someday. So start I know. storing them up for yourselves, I would say. In your heart. Mostly. Well, store the word up in your heart. <laughs> maybe get a couple extra get Bibles, Bibles on hand. Get and read them. <laughs> and hold on to them because when they get banned and your neighbor wants one, you'll have one for them. Um, so moving along here into sort of the Christian domain. Uh, the first story here is from today's Christianity and uh, the headline here says Southern Baptists overwhelmingly approve abuse reforms in a public database. Um, so you know, what really gets things cleaned up well is large government, governmental bodies, uh, setting up task force. Uh, because that always works well. Governmental task force. Mm. And if you read this article, that's what they're essentially setting up. And uh, the SBC has this new task force. And they're also, as this article goes on to say, creating a database of credibly accused abusers. Uh, Let me see where it says this. Yeah, do you, it says right here, it will be maintained by an independent firm, which will take and evaluate submissions hmm. for the credible accused abusers. Credible. So. so yeah. This I'm hmm. not a big fan of. So the SBC did a lot this weekend. Um, they chose not to elect Vody, um <laughs> to a position of something or other, don't really know what anymore, some president's council, but they bypassed Vody. They chose a new president, um, but these were the big reforms. So this is in response, obviously, to the report that came out a few weeks ago that sort of highlighted the sexual abuse and the mishandling, if you will, by the SBC around that. And this is their big answer, um, or at least the first step in their answer, because the article makes note that This is the minimum that needs to be done. And so they've established a new task force, which is oddly hard for me to say. (laughs) Um, Task force and set up a database for these credible accused abusers. Um, So I'll just say, listen, I want you guys to pray for the SBC, um, Mm -hmm. but I'm not a fan of this. You know, I'm not sure what the answer, the right answer is for this, but a task force, in my opinion, is not it. Is the independent firm um, 
they're not like religious. It's just oh a... well. Yeah, we don't know. I don't think it highlights necessarily who the independent firm is that's going to be handling this. Okay. But it is going to be independent of the SBC, which I'm sure they would tell you is to sort of keep them free from sort of any um, misconduct on the SBC's part. Like, hey, we're not even handling the database. It's these guys over there. So we can't, you know, fudge the numbers and all that. But the reason this doesn't sit well with me is, you know, the whole sort of goal of the SBC was to join these churches together in the goal of sharing the gospel, right? To spread the gospel around the world. They created this gigantic network where they can sort of pool resources and all these sort of things to share the gospel. So now instead of using your tithe money, because that's one of the large ways the SBC gets money is each church contributes to the SBC. So now instead of taking your tithe money and using that to go spread the gospel around the world, Instead, they're going to be taking your tithe money to pay for independent firms Mm -hmm. to keep track of their databases. They're going to be paying um, for task force members, um, their salaries to go and create websites and paying to manage websites and all these sorts of things rather than doing what you pay your tithe for. So um, they screwed this up years ago. They didn't do what they were supposed to do and keep track of these abusers, whatever they happen to be. And now they're taking your tax, uh, tithe dollars. And in my opinion, sort of misusing them. And I could be wrong. Maybe they're not, maybe they have some, you know, mystery pool of money that doesn't come from, but I would assume it just comes from their collection of money and that's what they're going to be paying it out for. I mean, they use that money just to pay for their utilities as well so why not add that on i would assume it's coming from the church's support of the sbc so i'm not okay with that because task forces rarely get to the bottom of anything um independent firms and websites i is this like a one location or are they gonna have like different ones by location there's like one headquarters of this. <laughs> oh, I have no idea how it's going to That's why I'm done. wondering how many people are in this task force. Is it I mean, I don't spread know. out or it's probably gonna be bigger than it. It probably be like and cost more than it was supposed to. Um, that's kind of the way this always goes. But the article does say on here it says there were few efforts at limiting or dismissing the calls to reform including messengers coming to the microphone to challenge the idea that sex abuse is systemic and widespread problem in the SBC and to reject the guide's post solution report because of the firm's pro-LGBT stance. So there were people at this convention that sort of pushed back on this like I would have and said, hey, we don't need these reforms because uh, sex abuse is not systemic in the SBC. And this is accurate. We talked about this when we discussed the report a few weeks ago. Um, Less than 1%, and I think, in fact, it's far less than 1% of pastors in the SBC were ever accused of sexual misconduct. Um, You know, out of what we just roughly figured, 90,000 probably on the low end pastors, 
uh, I think 700 of them had been accused. And that was just sort of currently mm. today. If you look at over 20 years where this report sort of reached back, you're talking maybe 200, 300,000 pastors mm-hmm. and only 700 of them. So far less than 1%. And that's warranted task forces, independent firms to collect data. Mm-hmm. Um, They're just making it a bigger issue and that's the other problem too right it's 2022 you have to do this in 2022 um because if you don't now you're a religious community that's not doing anything for sexual abuse yeah but the danger that i see here is you have this independent firm that's going to set up this database and these task force so now really you've almost opened the door to any sort of employee or pastor that has a grudge against you can sort of make a claim against you. And in 2022, and at least the next couple of years, unless God moves, it's all going to be credible. Wouldn't they need like the biblical way to like two or three witnesses? Not in today's world, because in today's world, we live by a standard of you always believe the accuser. Yeah. That's the standard, right? You always believe the women. You always believe the accuser. So could they potentially use this as a way to like this many strikes and your church's doors are closing because it's a well, private no, firm. because the SBC doesn't in fact own any of the churches or anything like they're independently run churches that just sort of contribute. I mean, they may be able to kick them out of the SBC and be like, yeah, you can't be a part Is of us anymore. Be... But okay. that would be my advice right up front. If you're a church at all, that's able to stand on your own two feet. Uh, I would consider leaving the SBC, you know, um, again, we've never been members of the SBC. Really. We don't know much about it necessarily, but I don't know that this spells like the start of a good thing for the SBC. And I would just think, you know, if you have the ability to sort of go your own way at this point, it may not be um, that bad of an idea. And if you don't have that ability, Maybe start working towards it. Um, I know that that's not going to be the stance everybody holds. Some people are very passionate about the Southern Baptist Convention. We are not. And I just don't think that this is a good look going forward, sort of uh, what you can expect going forward. Because mm-hmm. the thing is, odds are this won't stop here. You know, they got their foot in the door. They got these independent firms, they got task forces, sort of this feminist wave. And again, not that these women accusing them were wrong. I mean, I don't know anything about it other than the report, but maybe the the sharks smell blood in the water here. We know they want to come for our churches. Mm-hmm. That's true. And this is sort of an, an inroad to that. So a bit dangerous, but um, we have one last story here in the Christian realm that I think is a little bit old. But I just started reading on it, and I thought, there's some interesting stuff here, so I'd like to talk about it. Um, And this one, again, comes from Today's Christianity, and it is in response to Rick Warren's Saddleback Church and the naming of his successor. So... The big point that I wanted to talk about here, because this guy has come under some scrutiny, this fella named Andy Wood, you know, some allegations of sort of uh, authoritarian leadership they talk about down here. 
Saddleback does say that he's been cleared of all that. They've done their own investigation. No big deal, which that doesn't really strike me as that odd. I feel like in today's world, again, anytime somebody does anything of note, there's going to be accusers. And this is just kind of the work you have to do. So that part doesn't really bother me too much. I don't know about you, if that sat weird with you, but I just felt like that was commonplace. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they seem to say he wasn't an authoritarian leader. I don't know. Don't know anything about Andy Wood. But the point that I thought was interesting here, and the point that I wanted to bring up here, is this fella, Andy Wood, is the founder of this Echo Church here in San Francisco, I believe it is. He's the founder of um, Echo Church in San Francisco. He started it, I believe it says 13 years ago. Oh, I should probably actually pull it up here. Echo Church. And he founded, I believe, with his wife. This is his wife, Stacy. Um, he founded it 13 years ago, and it has grown to, I think they say now it's about a 3,000-member church. And what struck me as odd here is why would a pastor who founded a church and grew it to this size, of any size, leave for a different church? Hmm. This was your church. You built this church from the ground up. Why would you leave it? Like, I could see if you were hired on to the staff, you were a worship pastor or something, and an opportunity came up somewhere else, you would leave. But this was your church. Right. That you is built weird. it from the ground up. So why would you leave it for another church other than the only thing I can think of is it's a bigger church. We're talking Saddleback, you know, one of the five biggest it? churches in our country. 25,000 25,000. So to me, that stuck out right away. Like, this is almost the fact of like, any pastor like this that would want to take that job is the exact person you wouldn't want to take that job. It's almost like being a politician. Anybody who thinks they're qualified to be president is the very person you don't want to be president. Like their ego is way too big. Didn't Rick Warren, he mentioned in the article, he went through like, a hundred you know, oh, people sure. who wanted to be the successor. Like, who are all the other ones? <laughs> I'm wondering. <laughs> yeah, and this isn't even necessarily about the size of a church. I mean, he obviously, by anybody's standard, has a mega church, right? 3,000-member church. It talks about being a multi-site, multi-campus church. Very big, very successful church. <sighs> But it's yours. You created it. You yeah. built it. You, it's in your image, of, in a sense. You built it in the way you want it to be built. And now, because you get a better opportunity, you're like, it's time for so, me to move along. I just don't get that. Rick Warren said, you know, he, go, he likes that he has planted other churches. So that was a, you know, a big point for him in choosing Andy Wood. But he did mention his character, too. But I'm like... How does he know him so well? How does he know his character so well? Well, and I think he does make note in here that, um, you know, obviously they're both uh, California pastors. You know, Saddleback is in Southern California. Andy Woods is in Northern California. But they apparently have known each other, worked together, um, interviewed him, all that sort of stuff. But that's the big point that sat odd with me. Why would this pastor choose to leave? And if it's for the reason that I'm assuming, 
well, he has a bigger, better opportunity. That doesn't sit well for me. That is not the reason why I want a pastor to leave. You yeah, have a, what a his... flock to shepherd and you're just like, but that's a bigger flock. Yeah. Out, you know, like did God, I'm sure he has a story of like how he started his church and, you know, God called him to start it. Like, did God call you to abandon your flock? Well, I'm sure he's not abandoning it if he's leaving it in better. Maybe it's good for the church he's leaving behind. Maybe they're going to have a better It might pastor. be, because it does sound like they're one of the sort of, on their website, it makes note, you know, all are welcome at Echo Church, which oh, in San Francisco when they say is a that, pretty sketchy thing. You know thing. what they mean, yeah. And it does talk about how last year, I think it was, he held a conference and he invited Mark Driscoll like a year ago to come and be at this conference. And you're a like, leadership conference. We know what Mark Driscoll. You're not keeping his, good company. How those there. went. Uh, yeah. So I'd like to know what you guys think about this. Um, really, again, my big contention here is that a church founder is leaving his church he built to go to a bigger, better church. Why? Um, I wonder why. I do wonder why. I mean, who knows? What did Maybe he tell he... his church? And again, I'm not trying to make accusations because I don't know the man. I've never listened to a sermon. Well, yeah, we're but this strikes it up, me as very if odd. If anybody knows, I mean, maybe I mean we could maybe look it up. I don't know, but anybody I... knows. Yeah, what do anything. you guys think would be a good reason for him moving out of there? Maybe he just wants a warmer climate and sunny South Southern California is a beautiful place. Maybe that's all it is, but. Uh, just very strange here to, to read that. And not to mention, you know, he's just on a pastor front. You know, his wife is a teaching pastor. Mm. She's going to Saddleback to be a teaching pastor. Saddleback has just come under some scrutiny from the SBC for naming three women, ordaining them as pastors. So now they're on the verge of being kicked out of the SBC. So a whole lot of stuff. If you're in Southern California... Grace Community Church is not far away. <laughs> Go to John MacArthur's church. And uh, yeah, that's my recommendation. But we'd love to hear from you guys. So do you have any last thoughts on any of these news topics before we dive into our Bible topic of the week? No, we should move on. We've been in the news for We've been in the news a for a while. Time. And the news was awful. But <laughs> so getting into our Bible topic of the week. As we mentioned, we want to talk about polygamous Christians. And, you know, this may seem weird. I don't know. It's not something I've ever really heard about. Again, you hear about it sort of on the fringes of, you know, old Mormonism, which I'm sure most modern Mormons yeah. would say we don't do that anymore. I'll take them at their word. But the reason we wanted to address this is because if somebody has this thought, and I looked it up on YouTube, there's some pretty big YouTube videos and stuff that have a lot of views and a lot of agreement on this stance that polygamy is sort of the godly ideal for marriage. Well, I just want to mention our friend only has one wife. <laughs> he does. And he always makes the should. case that he's not advocating for other people to get married. His big contention is really something we appreciate. He wants to be true to God's word as best yeah. he understands it. Yeah. And makes sure that people aren't spreading false doctrine right he doesn't want us to say that it is a sin that's his whole point he's yeah. not trying to convince people to go out and get another wife at all and he's I been say, very respectful yeah not argumentative no like, and i have no bones discussion. about it i am 
I'm glad that he brought it up because it made us do some of our own homework. And um, honestly, from watching and you know the YouTube video and reading some of the comments, I don't think what we bring up would sway them, unfortunately. So we'll be interesting to see what our friend thinks um, because his contention is not that, uh, it's basically that there's nowhere really in scripture where God tells us that polygamy is a sin. Right. And right. I would agree with that. You can't find a scripture where God says not to do this. So the way that we're going to do this is I just sort of went back, you know, page one of the Bible, right? And just started reading through Genesis to kind of get my bearings. And then we're going to kind of use Genesis as most of our understanding. We'll kind of wrap it up with some Old Testament stuff and then jump into the New Testament to kind of finalize our talk on this. So the way I'm going to do it is just pull out some scripture. We'll start reading sort of um, as we go through Genesis and then just make comments where we see fit as we mm -hmm. go through this. So go all the way back um, to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. And this is where we see God creates man and woman creates the one man, Adam, the one woman, Eve. And then if you go just a few verses forward, Genesis 1.31, God pronounces it was very good. That, that creation, one man, one woman, and all of creation up to that point was very good. Um, but then Genesis 2.18, we see God, not man, understands that it's not good for man to be alone, and he pronounces that he will make a helper. Uh, fit for him, not helpers, just Eve. That's what he makes for Adam um, in mm -hmm. Genesis 2.18. So it's not that he needed more than one wife. It's not a need for the man. Does the man need more than one helper? Is it for the man's sake? I guess you could t look at that from that Not from according that to God. He, he saw man needed a helper. He gave him Eve. That was his helper. Um, his wife in a sense, right? And, you know, the Bible says in Genesis 2, 21 through 22, it says God takes one rib from Adam and forms the one woman Eve. Well, That's can I chime in here? Because if woman is the helper, then our friend had made the point that, um, like women, maybe they, they need a godly husband. There's no godly men around. Maybe you're the only one around in that that area, you would take them in and be a husband to them to care for them. So in a sense, you're like their helper helping them in their, you know, in their need. They need someone to shelter them and care for them. That's kind of his main, like, that's a, a good argument. I mean, that comes from a good heart, you know? Yeah. Um, and I know that there are some stories here in the Old Testament as far as, or even, I don't know if it's the Old Testament, but they talk about, you know, if the wife and the husband dies and the brother takes her in. And, you know, I think that was a, like a parable gonna... that Jesus told about then whose wife will she be in heaven um, and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, the idea of maybe taking care of a woman, uh, maybe. And as we go through this, we'll see uh, that there were laws and stuff in place. So I don't necessarily even disagree with that, right? That Maybe that was better in their eyes back then, but we're sort of looking at God's design, um, trying mm -hmm. to figure out our basis. So I think just looking at what God's design is, 
and again, we didn't cover all of scripture. Um, there too much to kind of go through. So this is just sort of our best understanding of it. So you may be able to point out some of these instances and, uh, but I don't think that's going to change what we present here really, in our opinion, you know, those sort of individual cases like that. I don't think that's going to change. Um, so that's Genesis 2, 21 through 22. God takes the rib from Adam, creates Eve, the one helper. Genesis 2, 24. Um, this is where you get God's plan, you know, for a man to leave his father and mother. And again, even here, there's no reason to assume that God means anything more than just his normal family of a mom and a dad. Man's going to leave his mom and dad. Um, and then again, in uh, Genesis 2.24, that man that leaves is to be joined to his wife and they become one flesh. Again, in the Adam and Eve model, this is the model God's presented. This is what he's telling us. We're going to leave father and mother, be joined together, just like Adam and Eve were joined together, one flesh. Um, mm -hmm. And then really, this sort of ends the perfect ideal creation as God intends it. You know, this is... Next comes the seventh day, God rested because all that he made was good and perfect. Mm -hmm. um, but then Genesis 3, we see man falls into sin, and life from there on is no longer perfect. Um, so everything past this point of the two become one flesh um, is an imperfect world. And going on through here, Genesis 4.19, this is the first instance in the Bible that we see a polygamous marriage. And this is four generations after Adam and Eve. And it's a fella named Lamech. And it's interesting the Bible makes specific note that Lamech has two wives. It's interesting that it notes that specifically. It says Lamech, you know, had two wives. And um, this was between, again, four generations. So roughly between 800 and my, you know, simpleton math, 874 years in 1,056 years of one man, one woman standard. So that's a long time to be sort of God's standard being enacted. And then so much so that it made specific mention, here's this dude named Lamech, and he takes two wives. Like it was the first time. The first time. I mean, I guess you could assume, but. And yeah. you would assume it because they make note of it, right? And there's something else that's important to note is, the Bible also makes clear that Lamech was a sinner. They make special note in here that he says he has killed a man and a boy. So again, the first man to take two wives is a special note in the Bible, and it's also noted that the man is a sinner in the line of Cain. I think that's worth noting. Um, and then again, Genesis 4.25 says Adam has relations with his wife. Again, no mention is ever made that Adam took on more wives. It's just him and Eve. Doesn't ever appear that he has changed that. Um, and then Genesis 5, verse 2, again, goes back and it notes that after creating man and woman, Adam and Eve, in his image, um, it says God blessed them. Just those two. Those were blessed. Adam and Eve in that creation, man and woman. Um, and then Genesis 6, 6. This is our first account of God being sorry that he's made mankind. Um, really, he makes that proclamation. And then Noah in Genesis 6, 8 is the only man to find favor in God's sight. Genesis 6, 18, 
God establishes his covenant with Noah and instructs him and his one wife, um, his singular wife, to enter the ark with his sons and their wives. And then Genesis 6.19, Noah is told to bring two of each kind into the ark, one male, one female, um, to be fruitful and multiply. And again, this is God's design, right? It's the same design that we see. Like um, God is doing it. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, again, going on forward, Genesis 7 verse 2, God, you know, continues to instruct pairs of animals be brought into the ark, male and female. And then Genesis 7, 13, Noah plus his three sons, plus Noah's wife, plus one wife per son. So Noah, his wife, one wife and one son get aboard the ark. That's who's on the ark. So this is sort of God's intention to save mankind after he becomes sorrowful for the sins of man. So he is getting ready to restart mankind in the same manner that he deemed it good in Genesis 1.31. One man, one woman, the two become one flesh. I, again, think that's important to note. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't choose Lamech to get into the ark, right? He chose Noah and his singular wife with his sons and their singular wives to get into the ark. Then push forward um, to Genesis 12. Genesis 12, verse 1, um, this is where we meet you know, Abram, and God establishes his covenant with Abram. And then fast forward to Genesis 16, 2, and Sarai, not God, instructs Abraham to lay with her slave Hagar. And 16, 3, Sarai gives Hagar to be Abram's wife because she doesn't believe the promise of God for a son. So it's important to note, Sarai pushes Hagar on to Abram to be uh, his wife. Hagar in 16.4 gets pregnant, and this sort of immediately brings turmoil and contention into that relationship. Um, It was not blessed. I think Mm -hmm. it's easy to note from that. Then Genesis 16.8, the angel meets, uh, comes down, and he refers to Hagar as Sarai's slave, not Abram's wife. So God does not affirm Abram's marriage to, uh, to Hagar. Hmm. And um, Ishmael in 1612 gets born and is promised a hard life. Uh, 17, 1 through 5, God reestablishes his covenant with Abram, changes his name to Abraham. Genesis 17, 15, God acknowledges Sarai as Abram's wife and changes her name to Sarah. Um, then Genesis 18, 9, God, or the Lord appears to Abraham and asks for his wife, Sarah. Again, no mentions made of Hagar. And um, Abraham in Genesis 20, um, verse 2, he only mentions his wife, Sarah, to Abimelech. No mention again is made of Sarah or, or Hagar. So I did make a note here in Genesis 20, verse 12 that Abraham notes that Sarah is the daughter of his father, but not his mother. Um, Though he doesn't make mention of multiple wives for his father, he just says that. So maybe a possible death of his mother, his first wife or something, and then remarries Abraham's mother. I mean, I don't know, or Sarah's mother, Abraham's mother. I don't know. It's all confusing. But that's worth noting. But no mention is made of multiple wives. So... Mm. 
Genesis 2021, Abraham's asked to uh, asked by Sarah to drive out the slave woman Hagar. Again, she's not recognizing her as Abraham's wife. Mm-hmm. Um, Genesis 21, God notes Ishmael is the son of the slave woman, not Abram's wife. So again, God is not acknowledging Hagar. Um, and then we do hear of um, concubines for the first time with Abraham's brother Nahor in Genesis 22. Um, Genesis 24, you know, Abraham makes, uh, his servant take an oath to find a wife for his son, Isaac. And we know that Isaac takes Rebecca to be his wife. And that's supposedly one of the more beautiful marriages in all of scripture. Um, I, there may be a verse, but I don't remember a verse that talks about Isaac having another wife could be mistaken. If I am, I apologize. Um, Abraham does take another wife in Genesis 25, one after Sarah's death. And then Genesis 25 is kind of where we ended our look at this. Abraham, it's mentioned that he has concubines. So um, that's worth noting. Oh, last one that I'll note. Genesis 26 notes that Esau as well took two wives, um, Judas and Basemath, whatever her name is. And I thought it was worth noticing or noting, I guess, that Esau, you know, hated his birthright, uh, was bypassed by Jacob for a blessing, you know, stuff like that. So. That's kind of where we went through to sort of look at what God's original design for marriage was. Um, so marriage, in, even in the Old Testament, right? I think it was traditionally monogamous. We can see that. Um, but it's also typically monog- uh, monogamous. So the tradition was monogamy, and it was typically monogamy. Um, you know, again, also, or almost to the point where it was specifically highlighted when someone has more than one wife, you know, Lamech mm. has two wives. It's noted. We know that David had seven wives. It was specifically said Solomon had 700 wives. We know that. And there's even, um, Moses is believed to have had, to have had two wives. Um, though it's a bit fuzzy, you know, I think numbers 12 has a reference. I'm going to say seven. There's something about the seven wives and the 700, like there might be. I'm sure somebody knows something about what that means. Numerology says something about it, I'm sure. Do you want to read this uh, verse, Numbers, Numbers 12? 12? Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the, the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. Yeah, so that's where they sort of get this notion that Moses probably had two wives. Um, again, hmm. either way, whether he did or not. Um, but then there's also mention of men with two wives in the Old Testament and the laws that are, they have laws that govern two wives. So it's a thing that's acknowledged. Um, Deuteronomy 21, 15 through 17. Do you want to read that? If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him children. And if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, Then on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the firstfruits of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. Yep. So specific laws, 
put in place by Moses um, from God to govern two wives. Um, so all of this sort of leading up, and again, there's probably many, many more verses we could go to. But why I, would one be loved and one unloved? Like the Rachel and Leah. Well, I think it's kind of loved. like, <laughs> right. You maybe you thought she was the one she wasn't. So you, you took on another wife. <laughs> and I think what he's saying there, yeah, you took maybe on a second one wife, was... but you had a kid with the first one that you didn't oh. like anymore, but that's still the firstborn. So know. they were not allowed to divorce, so they instead just got another wife. Well, they were, because there's also <laughs> divorce laws in Deuteronomy that they write. That's Obviously, right. Jesus notes that, and we'll get to that in a minute. Um, but so from all of this that we looked at, just sort of up to this point, what I gather from all of this is that God's original intention, you know, his original design, sort of what his best for us was, has always been one man, one woman. You know, from the very beginning, that was the case. Uh, men, however, are sinful and fallen, and they've twisted uh, this design, and we traded God's perfect design for men's lesser design, the sort of knockoff version, if you will. Mm -hmm. And God allowed it. You know, he didn't specifically speak against it, but rather put laws in place to govern it. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of where I think the Old Testament stood. Now, obviously, you can get into things like David and Solomon, you know, and this is what I told my friend. I'm like, you're not a, you know, an Old Testament king uniting the tribes, right? The reason kings got married was for far different reasons. And that's beside the point. Um, so that I think is where I fall. And again, you may disagree, but that's what I believe reading through the Old Testament as much as I did. And I think it makes sense to me. So this moves us into the New Testament. You know, I think that's where we left off in the Old Testament. Now we move to the Old Testament. And I think marriage, you know, like most things changed when Christ arrived, the new covenant was brought in. And I think the place we see this most clearly is in Matthew 19. Um, though I will mention that the polygamous Christians sort of poo-pooed this point, although I think he's wrong and I think I'm right. Because in Matthew 19, verse 3 through 9, it says, And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one man's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So here Jesus is hearkening again back to Genesis 2.24. Uh, but he goes on, he says, so there are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Hmm. So... From this, and again, he poo-pooed it, I think he was wrong. You know, I think while Jesus is addressing divorce here, um, I believe his answer speaks to a broader context, you know, because he's telling them, you guys screwed up marriage, and God made room for it, though this is not his ideal. Um, so he's saying, therefore, let me clarify for you that Moses' law for marriage is not superior to God's design. Therefore, the original design 
is God's design. And then I think from this point, I would say Jesus changes the divorce laws governing Christians. We are no longer to adhere to Old Testament divorce laws. We are to adhere to Christ's commandment for divorce laws. Um, So we likewise should strive for Christ's standard of marriage that he hearkens back to Mm -hmm. God's ideal design, um, not man's screwed up version of it. So I think that's important to note there, right? He's saying, yeah, you guys messed it up and God made room for it. Mm-hmm. but that's not what we're going for. And now I'm changing your divorce laws and we're going back to the pre-Mosaic standard for marriage. I don't know why that shouldn't include one man, one woman. In my it mind, makes it makes sense perfect to sense me to because me. I think when he's teaching something, it's not just specifically that. Like you, like you said, it's a broader context. Yeah. I really agree with that. And I think the apostles agreed with it too. Um, you know, you move forward from Jesus's teachings to the apostle Paul. Um, he sort of reemphasizes this perfect ideal when he explains to us the ideal we ought to be striving for in regards to godliness. So first Timothy um, chapter three, Paul gives us the qualifications for both overseer or bishop and deacons. Now, both of which are required to be the husbands of one wife. So why is this? It's because it's God's ideal and has always been God's ideal. Um, Therefore, men who are called to be leaders of Christ's church in the earth must set the standard for God's ideal, which is one man, one wife. That's the requirement. Um, And Paul teaches this same principle in his letter to Titus. In chapter 1, verse 6, he says, If anyone is above reproach, uh, the husband of one wife. So I think that's important to note. Paul is reframing what the ideal Christian should be striving for. That's above reproach. Yep. Yeah. Um, Paul reiterates Jesus' teachings on um, the Genesis 2.24 point in Ephesians 5.31. Do you want to read that, honey? Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Yep, so there he is. He is reiterating what Jesus taught that we're to go back to Genesis 2.24 is our ideal standard for marriage. Um, And then Paul even goes on the basis of avoiding sin. He says, let each man have his own wife, the singular, right? His own wife. And that's in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2. He says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So... That's our take on the New Testament look at this. And I'm sure, again, there's more scriptures we could pull to sort of solidify this point, but I don't think it's necessary. I mean, ultimately, you hear one preaching or teaching from Jesus, and that should be the end of all of it. But, um, Mm. yeah, I think you would make a mention. So that's our— I was going to chime in at the end here. Yeah, I'll just say that's our stance here. So we disagree with our friend. We agree that polygamy was never defined as a sin in the Old Testament, but I think it was clearly defined as a break from God's ideal. I think that's easy to see. But then I think when the new covenant arrives, Jesus reframes the proper marriage in God's ideal design of Genesis, uh, taking it you know, before the Mosaic standard and sort of redefining it in God's original intent, which is one man, one woman. Apostle Paul reiterates that numerous times, and that's the foundation for our Christian living. So I think to deviate from mm-hmm. that leads you into sin. 
that's our stance. So you did have some extra points on this you wanted to make. You know, I wish I had brought my Bible up here um, so I could actually just read the scripture. But we are, um, when we read, I can't remember exactly <laughs> where it was. Well, anyway, you were making the point of essentially about... About widows. That's what I was going to talk about. Because well, our friend talked about Oh, how we're how men should be caring for those who need the shepherding of a husband. And Paul is not instructing men in the church to take on these young widows as wives. The church is to care for them. But he says if they are young, he advises they do get married, but he never tells the men you need to take on this role and be their husband and have more than one wife. But he says women who are over 60, they should definitely be cared for by the church. So this role, so that just saying like that argument that a man needs to care for that, that widow, that young widow, um, he would have said that, but instead he says the church should care for them. But if they're young, they will be a, Busybody. He does say these widows will be a burden to the church because they're yeah. they just become gossips and busybodies. So and they don't work. They do nothing. They're just they could make themselves useful. Well, I think it would make sense that Paul would say that because he's also the very one who told us to strive to have one wife, right? So it would make sense that he would say, "Yeah, let the church take care of them. You don't need to marry a bunch of women. Have one wife." Yeah. Um, so that would make sense to me, right? That he would push that teaching. And he also, you know, again, teaches that it's better for people if they don't have, you know, the penchant towards sexual immorality to mm-hmm. not be married, devote yourself to the Lord. You know, that's something Paul teaches right. as well. So, so the church should be caring. If there are women who are in need financially, the church is to care for them, not a husband per se. They can get married, but we are not told Hey, you're a godly man. Look at all these widows. Can you take them on? Like, there's no instruction for that. (laughs) No, and again, you may, again, we didn't scour every verse in the Old Testament. So maybe there was a verse like that tossed around in the Old Testament. But again, I think that all changed with the new covenant. And Jesus and Paul specifically took us back to a pre-Mosaic standard for marriage. And I think that as Christians is the standard we're supposed to be taking forward. And yeah, I, I think it makes sense. I'm glad I did this look the way I did. I feel very confident that monogamy is the standard. And I think to deviate from that is sinful. Um, in today's world, again, maybe in Moses's time, that wasn't the case, but we don't live in Moses's time. Um, Christ has come and he's given us a new covenant. So that's what we're to walk in. Amen. Do you have any last thoughts on polygamous Christians or the news or anything before we get to our sermon of the week? I mean, there's things I could say. I mean, if a man wants more than one wife, is he is he doing it to care for the woman or is he doing it for selfish reasons? <laughs> right. And we did have that sort of initial talk about like, is this even something you ought to broach to people? Mm-hmm. Um, Our culture is just so wicked. I think that men would just run with it for the wrong reasons. I don't know how many men out there would really want to do that and for the right reason. Just being godly, honey. I yeah. brought this new wife home. Uh, no, it's it's weird. It's a weird yeah. thing to sort of. But again, 
I think his, I'm assuming his heart's in the right place. So I'm not trying to beat the guy up too much. I just think he's yeah. wrong. Um, but I would like to know what you guys think. If you have more sort of ammunition for this, I'd love to get it. Um, because again, it's something that we just sort of know probably instinctively, or you've just kind of been raised that way without mm -hmm. really giving it. Yeah. I think it's important that we know dive. why we believe what we believed, even with just saying we're a Christian, yeah. I think with everything. So I think it was really, I appreciate it. Really good to dive into and discuss. So our sermon recommendation, um, I will mention to you guys, you know, I kind of determined earlier this week, like Sunday, I was like, you know, we bash on Osteen. Everyone bashes on Osteen. I was like, I'm going to devote to listen to an Osteen sermon every day this week, just so I can know for certain. Um, I listened to one on Sunday and then I listened to like half of one on Tuesday and like half of one on Thursday. And that was as far as I could get. So I failed you guys. I could not listen to an Osteen sermon every day. Um, but I will make note of what I did listen to. And I think that it's actually quite clever what Osteen does. Um, the way he sort of starts his sermons with this confession that they make. You guys may have heard it where he says, like, this is my Bible. You know, I am what it says I am. I can do what it says I can do. But then he says, um, at the end of it, he says, today I will be taught the word of God and some other stuff. And I was like, that's a really clever way to sort of, and I don't know if propagandize is the right word, but sort of condition your parishioners to be like, no, no, we're hearing the word of God. I just said it. I'm holding my Bible. And I, I heard the word of God. And mm. I was like, that's a pretty clever little uh, tactic there. Um, so just something to note. You know, I heard him preach. His sermons are just almost all of them are about 28 minutes long. Um, very clever speaker. You know, he mixes in funny jokes and stories and some scripture, uh, you know, but what I heard, you know, they're all the same story told in a different context of overcoming. God wants to take you to a higher place. And, you know, all you got to do is really make up your mind to get there. Motivational speech. It's a motivational speech, which is pretty fascinating. You know, I thought because we have motivational speakers, you know, Tony Robbins and Andy Andrews, and they draw a certain crowd, but not a lot. you like, I didn't look up on here. Um, maybe I can really quick just to see. Uh, let me look real quick. See how many views does Tony Robbins um, Yeah, so I mean, Tony Robbins, you know, maybe the biggest motivational speaker in the country. And he's getting a hundred and some 200,000 views. Some of his stuff has over a million views. But I thought it was interesting that Joel Osteen, a lot of his sermons I saw were well over a million views. And I was like, you know, motivational speakers draw a certain crowd and Christians draw a certain crowd. But there's something about once you mix that motivation mm. with religion where people feel like they're sort of being connected to God in a way that's like, taking them to a higher place. Mm -hmm. Whereas like, if you're just a motivational speaker, yeah, motivation, work hard and try hard. And you're like, ah, oh, yeah, that's good. And I need it. But when you attach, God wants you to get there and God's going to help you get there. Like that somehow just like rocket ships you mm -hmm. up in people's minds. So a very weird phenomenon. And Joel Osteen, 
not my cup of tea as far as the way he preaches, but he does his thing well. Um, so I listened to it, you know, a 30 minute uh, talk, whatever you want to call it, about being happy, choosing to be happy. God wants you to be happy. He's going to help you to be happy. And then right at the end of it, he says, um, you know, he says, if you've decided, or if you want to make the decision to make Jesus your Lord or something like that, say this prayer. And he prays a quick, you know, sinner's prayer, as you would call it. And I was like, there literally was not even close to a mention of the gospel. It was be happy. God wants you to be happy. God will help you be happy. Do you want Jesus to be your savior? You're like, Nothing what are they going to be saved from? You're going to be saved from being unhappy? Right, right. I was like, that. Is... And then he said after that, like, if you prayed this prayer, I believe that you're saved. And I was like, what a dangerous thing to tell people. Yeah. Um, so it gets to that point where you're like, I'm not even sure he was, he's a good dude. Look at all these people who are Christians because they recited a prayer and not even known why they were praying it, what it's really about. He has a stadium packed out every Sunday with 40,000 people that are like, I don't see how any of them can be Christians if their faith is based off of their profession of their, of their reciting a prayer. You're not saved because you recited, repeated a prayer. You're not saved. That is not salvation. Your faith is in your profession. Your faith isn't in Christ. No, I would agree. Because he said you're saved if you said this prayer. Right. And this you're is where we get into the... You're saved if you believe on Jesus. There's a difference. The numbers that we've talked about where, you know, 60% of the America says they're Christian. And you're like, if they're part of that 60%, I would probably second guess that. Um, Christians so, are really like 5%, maybe. Well, we said, <laughs> you know, we showed that article before, 6% of America has a biblical worldview. I don't know how you consider yourself a Christian if you don't have a biblical worldview. And 6% seems to be about right for people that you would think, yeah, that dude's a sold out Christian. So we thought in honor of Joel Osteen and listening to his sermons as best we could this week, for our sermon recommendation, we would offer up Paul Washer. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so our sermon we're going to recommend here is The Biblical Tests of True Faith by Paul Washer. Um, He doesn't make you... um feel good about yourself, he's not promising that you're going to be happy as a Christian either. No, nobody <laughs> does a, a better sort of punch in the soul than Paul Washer. Oh, but the word of God is what's doing it. Yeah, it is. It's very, so <laughs> go give Paul Washer a listen. We highly recommend it. And then, you know, judge your faith. You know, a, a good tree bears good fruit. Yeah, bad tree test bears yourself bad fruit, to see if you're you in the know? faith. We're told to uh, test ourselves. And that test is not, oh, yeah, remember I said a prayer 20 years ago. That's, no, that's not testing yourself to see if you're in the faith. And that's it's not tough what you because mean. it's confusing because that is part of your salvation walk. You must believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. We're told that in scripture. But for so many of them, that's where it stopped. Mm-hmm. I can believe in my heart. I confess with my mouth. But then there's none of that first John testing the assurance of your salvation, mm-hmm. um, which Paul Washer is going to go heavily into testing your true faith, right? Do you actually have what you claim to have? So 
Well, we're told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Absolutely. How do you work out something if you're like, nope, I, I worked it out in that 30-second prayer I cited. Yeah. To continue. I know. I woke up happy, I'm gonna... <laughs> so I worked it out. So that's our sermon for the day, uh, for the week. Um, make sure you guys come back on Monday. We'll be having our daily devotionals and back again next Saturday. So long as the world's still standing and the Lord hasn't come back yet. Please, Lord, come back. God bless. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.